Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Renewable Roadmaps, brought to you by Renewable Resource Solutions. As always, I'm your host, Chris Kinane, and I specialise in end-to-end recruitment into all different kinds of renewable energy projects. I'm actually looking for a business development specialist in the UK with experience in solar and um, battery. If, if anyone listening knows anyone, please do get in touch. But I'm also trying a, a quicker, snappier intro to the podcast. So this week we are joined by Stuart Mullen, who is the COO of GWIC and also a fellow podcaster. So without further ado... Hello, Stuart. Um, can you please introduce yourself? Christopher, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. So, listeners, my name's Stuart Mullen. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for uh, the Global Wind Energy Council, which is a, a long job, job title, but I'm used to having long job titles. Uh, prior to joining the Global Wind Energy Council, or which is better known in the industry as GWIC, um, I was... I've worked for a couple of OEMs, namely MHI Vestas Offshore Wind, where I I was the head of originally public affairs, communication, branding, and um, marketing. And then more recently, the head of institutional relations and public affairs. And then prior to that, I worked for uh, Siemens Gamesha, actually at that stage it was just Siemens Wind Power for seven years, where I was also heading up uh, public affairs for the European, Middle East and Africa region. So job titles and long intros, I'm, I'm uh, fully au fait with. So, so listeners, that's me in a nutshell. Going back to the start then, Stuart, where, where did this journey into offshore wind start for you? Yeah, so my journey into renewable energy, I guess, started back in Australia. So I've been living in Denmark for the past 20 years, but I've, we, um, when I moved from, uh, from Australia to Denmark in 1998, prior to moving to Denmark, I, I had this, uh, I'd always been fascinated about environmental movements. And one of the jobs that I had uh, was to, in my, one of my first jobs in public affairs or public relations, was to uh, help campaign for, I think it was like a one million tree project, which was a reforestation of one million trees. And so I, I, I love this idea of uh, working for the uh, environment. And you know, when I came to Denmark, I, you know, I met a, I met a woman, and we just moved to Denmark. So I went from Australia to uh, come here to live in Denmark. Um, yeah, without giving up too much thought to career, etc. And so, you know, you, I did the I did the mandatory stuff to get by, and you know, like, you know, I've carried bricks on building sites, and I've uh, you know, washed dishes in uh, the restaurants, etc. So I've really had a, a diverse background. But one of the first things I did when we moved to Denmark, we look, we moved to this small country town called Odder, like O D D E R, um, and Otter, it's about a couple of kilometres from the beach. And when we first moved there, we actually rented a summer house uh, for, the, for the first six months because we couldn't find anywhere in town. So we rented a summer house, which was right on the water and overlooked this, this, uh, this Vestas wind park called Tuno Knob, which was the first Vestas wind park, which was installed in 1995. So it was still only three years old when I came to Denmark. Um, 
and I was fascinated by it. I, I just thought it was the most amazing thing that when you walk down to the beach, you know, you had this the shoreline and the harbour, like this bay beach, and then you had these turbines in the water, and I thought, wow, this country is awesome. Like, you know, to think that there's so much renewable energy, uh, you know, already in Denmark and, you know, Australia was still in its infancy, you know, Australia is such a coal mining nation. So, uh, but this was something really transformative for me and the island. So there's Tuno, which is where the wind park is associated with, but then the other island just to the right of Tuno is an island called Samsu, which is like one of the world's, you know, examples of renewable energy in an island mode. So when I moved to Denmark, I had two really strong examples of renewable energy and offshore wind in particular right on my doorstep and it took me you know it took me well, I guess part the best part of six seven years before I found a, a way to get into that um, space of it then when I joined Siemens from that point forward I never looked back. So you got it on your radar quite early on then you know it's a six or seven year journey before you you managed to to enter what did that look like then getting that first position with Siemens? Yeah, so at that stage, I'd been, uh, I, at that stage, I'd been working for a defence company called uh, Systematic here. And, and I'd, I, I, I thought like it was a, it was a high tech industry. And um, for me, I'd been doing these sort of like international comms. And when I got the chance to get into wind power, it was kind of like a, I actually started in uh, internal comms. It was actually to rejig the the uh, company's intranet because uh, I've been doing a lot of digital comms uh, throughout my career as well. And I, I started, you know, as with an intranet project out at Siemens Gamesia or Siemens Wind Power then. And then that led that was in the marketing, and then it was uh, area, and then it was quite clear that you know from my boss that I had some potential for comms and marketing, and so I quickly moved into that area, and it was really great because I like at that stage um, Siemens had just had just bought out this this small wind company called Bonus Energy um, like three years beforehand, and so a lot of the bonus spirit was still in Siemens when I joined, and it was kind of like this small entrepreneurial spirit. And it's a company that had been punching above its weight class for a, a real long time. Like, you know, the bonus, you know, like if you ever get to California and you look at those uh, wind turbines in the mountain range just between uh, Los Angeles and um, on the way to Las Vegas, those mountain ranges where you can just see all of these old turbines. A lot of these, those are bonus uh, turbines. Um, so these guys have been around for some time and, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a guy called Henry Steesdale, who was the, the CTO of Siemens at that particular time. And that guy was just a font of knowledge. And he had this, he had this really great way of being able to explain the technical. So, you know, like during my time at Siemens, you know, at that stage, they launched the uh, direct drive turbine or their first entry into direct drive turbine, which is what they still use at sea. Um, and that was what they, they wanted to get, they wanted to hone or uh, perfect the skill on land before bringing it, bringing it offshore. Um, and so that was a big, uh, like, you know, I guess, it really interesting thing to see a company literally change from one, like a geared platform, which was 
their whole, entire history into a direct drive platform, which was completely new. You know, and I saw a lot of great innovations and being in the marketing and comms area, you really kind of, it's your role to promote these to the world. So you have to kind of understand how transformative this stuff that we're bringing to the market is and was. And so, you know, and that followed on when I went to MHI Vestas, when, I mean, at that particular stage, I had the good fortune of being um, able to do all of the comms for the V164, uh, which is the first eight megawatt turbine. And so for, for listeners that don't know much about turbines, I mean, it's just simple math, you know, like the, the eight megawatts is how much, how much energy a, a, a turbine can generate. And to put it into some sort of context, I don't know others have spoken about this before on your podcast, Chris, but to put it into some type of context, that Tuno Knob wind farm that I mentioned that I saw when I first moved to Denmark, that had 10, 50, uh, 500 kilowatt turbines. So that, that megawatt capacity was five megawatts for the entire park. The turbine that I took over, the, like the, the uh, marketing for when I first joined MHI Vestas was double and a half that capacity of uh, that turbine, I just uh, of that wind park. And I just thought it's absolutely amazing to, to think how far technology's come. And again, you know, soon after MHI Vestas came out the, with the, the eight megawatt turbine, uh, you know, Ersted won a, a park, a, a tender in Germany where they said, you know, in, by the time, you know, 23, 24, 2023, 2024 comes around, we'll be talking 15 to, you know, or yeah, 14 to 15, if not higher, megawatt turbines. And if you look at the market today, that's exactly what we are. So I've, we've seen these rapid doubling of, of wind turbine capacities in my time. Uh, and uh, it's been fascinating to be, uh, to see these from a manufacturing perspective and you know, to get the, to understand from the OEMs about how this works. And then also you end up seeing a little bit from the developer's perspective and how they you know, interact with the developers. So, yeah, so that was a, again, a long answer to a very short question. I'm sorry, Chris, I'm talking your ears off. No, no, it was, it was a great answer. It was a great answer. Interesting though, for that time, and I've had Michaela on the past, I've had Julia and synergies with, with their positions and, and what you've done in the past. But it'd be interesting to know, was the challenges getting these messages across on this sort of new technology back then? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's there's always challenges with new technology. And again, there, there's, you know, we, we talk about in, in wind power, there's, of course, the NIMBY stuff that the NIMBY arguments that you have to count encounter, which is the people that is not not in my backyard. Um, they don't want that. And so I remember going to yeah, I remember one of my jobs with uh, Siemens when I was at Siemens, we went down to uh, photograph a, I think it was called the Tiuku uh, wind park in New Zealand. And it was significant because it was at that stage you know we talk about the cost of wind and and the wind you know it's always had subsidy and so there's always been some sort of caveat and the wind industry has always been a bit of an excuse for itself the fact that it's needed uh needed subsidies you know like we're, we're far from the only industry that re relies on subsidies and coal and gas has been getting subsidies but for some reason it it it's sort of that issue is stuck that we needed subsidies 
um, but the, this Tiuka wind farm, no, West Wind was, it was West Wind wind farm. Um, it was the first wind park that Siemens had established that didn't require any um, uh, subsidies. It was, and so I remember going there thinking, wow, this is going to be great. You know, like one of the biggest arguments that you get from people is that wind is expensive, uh, you know, like the other is intermittency, but this is, be, it's expensive. And so we, we have this West Wind wind park in New Zealand um, that was that didn't need subsidies to exist. And I remember going down there to film this and I was, when I got there, I was really surprised to see like some protest signs at the bottom of the park where, you know, like people were said, you know, like it's too noisy or it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, most, there's, whenever you do an infrastructure project, there's always gonna be objections to the infrastructure project. That's just the way of life, you know. Some people just don't want change, and particularly people don't want change in their backyard. Everyone, everyone wants electricity. Everyone wants access to fast electricity, but no one wants a power plant anywhere near them. Just you know, keep it away, and somehow the the magic of energy just appears. Um, but what I, what I really thought was interesting about this was that um, I remember a couple of years later that we had to go back there for some reason, and the local community had really changed attitudes around this like it seemed to that once it had been established and people saw how it was and that you know I remember when we did this photo shoot like it was you know there's picturesque hills of New Zealand you know you think of Lord of the Rings country you know um and uh yeah and and then there was like you know sheep and cows you know sort of like grazing between the turbines just and for some some for me it just felt like that the turbines were part of the environment and i guess that the locals realized that that was the case too and again we used to have these things like you know people would complain about the noise of a turbine you know you hear the whoosh 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 as it goes past the as the you know, blade swings past the tower and it makes that whooshing noise but i mean you know i know that in at least in my time with the oems well, actually, particularly Siemens, Gamesha, when, when we were still focusing on onshore wind, you know, people were working diligently to try to avoid the noise issues uh, associated with turbines. But truth be told, once the wind gets over more than like, I think it was some ridiculously low amount, I think it was like, you know, five metres per second, um, that the decibel of the wind is higher than the turbine. And then, again, when you sort of like uh, put these quadrants about a wind park, about which direction, because the wind turbines don't, you know, I don't know how much listeners know about this, but wind turbines don't stay in one one direction the entire time. They, they, they follow the wind. They, they yaw to face the wind the entire time. So even in the, you know, the, even the noisiest turbine in the noise, you know, in the lowest wind conditions is only going to be, uh, you know, like that for a very, very small uh, portion of time. And again, you know, considering that you what the what the alternatives are, um, I think that you know most people, again, you know, I guess that's why wind has become so popular. Most people would don't mind having a wind turbine in their backyard, and we also found, I guess, that those communities that uh, allowed the community be, to be a part of it, whether it be through community investment or some sort of like you know payback into the community programs. Those communities with some sort of vested interest in the wind park, uh, no one really seems to complain in those communities. Really interesting. And I suppose going back from then until sort of now, 
what are the main changes that you you've seen in the market so of course the size of the turbine has rapidly increased but that's a really interesting challenge uh also so again you know to take the listeners through math and it's nothing like a good math lesson on a podcast to, to keep listeners interested uh, but i'll try to keep it simple so for example if you if you wanted to be a profitable uh, factory for example you know we like uh, in the wind turbine you know wind turbine manufacturers they need to build factories to to you know make the wind turbines and whenever you go to a new market, for example, you know, the US in the offshore wind space, the US was very keen to have local content uh, in their market. And so they say, you know, what would it take for us to build a factory? What would it take you guys to build a factory there? And then you'd say, okay, it takes, you know, say for example, you need a hundred units year on year to keep a factory running. So, okay, that's great. That's great. We can guarantee a hundred units. Well, back when I first started in wind, the average offside, offshore wind turbine was two megawatts. So to keep a factory running, you needed 200 megawatts year on year. Uh, like that, that was enough you know, for a, a well, you know, it's a very crude math and not my, my, any wind colleagues listening to this would be crucifying me going, that's not right. He's way off of the figures. And I understand that it's a simplification. Um, but now if you, if you spool forward to today, like a wind turbine can be like, you know, 15 megawatts. So in, you need for 100 units, you need 1.5 gigawatts year on year. And you know, in the offshore space, it was really only Siemens and uh, MHI Vestas doing wind turbines. But now we see the Chinese manufacturers uh, coming in with their big turbines. We see GE back in the game with their Heliade uh, wind turbine, and which I guess Michaela spoke about as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you see like this rapid increase. And so not only do you need like 1.5 gigawatts uh, for, to keep a factory open, but you need it times three for, you know, for each of the manufacturers or you know, four or whatever to keep this supply chain going. So all of a sudden you've gone from a market where you needed like, you know, maybe 400 megawatts year on year to keep suppliers engaged to somewhere where you need like, yeah, up to six gigawatts year on year in a market. And that's very difficult for any single market to, to generate that amount of uh, volume. And so what you need to see is the sort of regions working together in order to be able to, to deliver this uh, amount of volume so, so it's not reliant on one market because the, the last thing you want to do is have one manufacturer having a, like a boom year for two years and then they've got nothing in the market so they close down all their factories all of their people leave or whatever and then someone else takes over and then they have to find different skill sets and then train people and it's it's just a real mess so we it's much better when it's much better for a market at least in my perspective to be very stable and consistent and have that market volume um, and I think that we're starting to see that more and more. But I mean, you know, but I, I think that, you know, you asked me what the, the what's changed so much. Well, the, the size of the projects have changed. The size of the turbines have changed. The markets where we're now operating have changed, particularly in the offshore space. Yeah. And I, but I mean, you know, like the basics of being able to produce good quality turbines uh, reliably in factories that operate year on year without boom and bust cycles that imperatives remained. No, that's really interesting. I've, I've, for me personally, I've never really thought about the boom and bust side, side of things there. And, you know, 
the reliance on the pipeline of projects globally in order to keep the supply chain ticking over. So that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And I suppose that leads us quite on, so it leads us quite well onto um, your, your position at the moment, which is Chief Operating Officer at GWIC. Um, obviously, you're, you're, a, you're a fountain of knowledge yourself on the industry. Can you tell us a bit more about GWIC and, and what the organisation does? Um, so GWIC is the Global Wind Energy Council, and uh, it was formed in the mid-2000s uh, by companies or, or by... Uh, well, actually, the Wind Europe uh, had a was a founding member of this, and uh, as an association, in order to help uh, the wind industry establish itself in new and emerging markets. So it did that really well. Um, it first it was it started in the onshore world, and again back in my day when I was with with um, Siemens, I saw firsthand how. Uh, GWIC came in and really opened up the Latin American market for the industry. And yeah, and then GWIC had been, you know, ever since I've been in the industry, GWIC has just been this sensational organisation. It kind of sits as the apex organisation over all of the wind associations. And it's not, it's not like it, it rules over these, but what happens is all of the associations can be members of GWIC and feed up from their regions into this global, uh, yeah, I guess, association that can help sort of like, you know, with there's global issues that need to be dealt with. Um, we can look at, you know, ways of best practice. We, it's not it's not that GWIC specifically needs to, you know, have a European focus or an Asian focus or a Latin America focus. We can do, we, we, we can be active wherever uh, we need to be. And so, you know, we have task force forces that in, um, Africa, for example. So the African market was, again, um, I think the African market was around about 750 megawatts in total last year, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, when you compare the average offshore, offshore wind site now is 1.5 gigawatts, you know, or you know, one gigawatt, one up to two gigawatts, it's, it's really, you know, like it puts it into con context that the whole African nation was delivering 740 megawatts. I think that's amazing. So GWIC's role is to, to help, you know, help companies get established and help markets get established, like in places like Africa that necessarily look to, to wind, uh, uh, you know, as part of their energy mix naturally. Uh, places like Asia, where we've seen, you know, GWIC has been quite active in the onshore space for some time but not in the uh, offshore, really had some success in the offshore space as well. That, that's really interesting to do it. So what, what does your day-to-day -day role look like? My, on a daily basis, as Chief Operating Officer, I oversee all of the strategic partners partnerships for GWIC. So I have... I have a membership team that looks after the members, but uh, and we have different levels of membership within the GWIC organisation. And so I look after... Yeah, I help the membership team uh, in in listening to our members and trying to create membership packages and uh, membership offerings that that meet the needs of our members. So GWIC is a not-for-profit organisation, and we rely on the funding of members to be able to do the lobby work or the advocacy work that we that we do in different markets, and so it's really important for me to be able to listen to our leading members and hear what their priorities are and then interpret that and then work with our programs teams uh, 
we have Joyce Lee, who's the director of programs, and work with her to help uh, you know work out what programs that that we're putting in, what we're going to put in place for the next year. Um, I also look after the uh, commercial aspect of Joyce's program, so I, I need to make sure that that programs are financed uh, properly, so that you know uh, that we can do the advocacy work that's required. So, for example, you know uh, we're doing GWIC are, are kind of like overseeing and running the wind industry's uh, participation at this year's COP26 in Glasgow. And so part of my role is to make sure, so Joyce is running the program um, in collaboration with Renewables UK, or they'll start uh, quite uh, soon. So Joyce is running that program. Um, and then it's my role to work with her to make sure that that we have enough finances, for example, to do all of the activations uh, on site that we're planning to do. Brilliant. And I know recently, and I've, I've attended some of these webinars when I can, and you guys have released a number of, um, well, regional reports, but then also um, the global report recently as well. And I know you briefly touched on sort of Africa and Asia, but what, what's the general sort of outlook globally, would you say? Um, yeah, so thank you for that. So we, we've, you're right, what we did was we, we uh, every year in March, we release, release what's called the Global Wind Report. Uh, and then in the lead up to that report this year, we did a whole lot of you know, market. We went, we looked at the offshore sector first, and then we went to, we had a look at the, uh, to Asia, Africa, Latin America, and then in, we released the final report. So that report looks back on what happened last year and what, what's been installed last year. So for example, last year was a, was a record year for the wind industry and we did more uh, megawatts than ever before. But it was primarily two countries that led that charge. It was China that was, uh, you know, that led the charge. And China has uh, like what they uh, have a feed-in tariff, uh, that like a, a subsidy scheme that is sunsetting. So they're phasing out this uh, subsidy scheme um, as uh, at the end of one of their five-year plans. And, and uh, this is this has caused a great number of uh, a big rush of turbines to be installed uh, throughout last year, and it will see it will continue on a little bit this year. Um, and the same thing with the uh, the US, where they had the sunsetting uh, production tax credit, so the PTC. They again, that's that's been phased out, and also the ITC, which is having a step down, I believe, as well for the offshore area for investment. So there's been a bit of a there's been a bit of a like a burning platform for uh, these nations to accelerate, or, or the the uh, people that want healthy. Uh, economics behind their pro projects. Um, they needed to get their turbines installed last year. So we saw a bit of a boom in, in terms of installations in those two countries. And then again, if we look other places, it was okay, but it was nowhere near the where we would expect. And, you know, I mean, the wind industry has to almost double again, what we in terms of capacity we like you know if we if, if we're talking about avoiding this you know 1.5 degrees then we have to just like people don't realize the scale but we really need to get going and the whole it's a 
whole world that needs to look at what, what we can do here to scale up because the, the volume that we need is we're, we're not going to make it if we just keep up this pace and we can't rely on just a couple of countries to do the heavy lifting uh, like China and US. So even though it was a great year and we could all pat ourselves on the back and say, well, that despite COVID, we had a great year and we still kept projects being installed. And the, you know, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. I think it was a sensational effort by the entire industry uh, to keep the, the turbines turning and the factories churning out uh, wind turbines during COVID because you know, all of the supply chain was uh, impacted and people had to work doubly hard to get you know, their products on time for their just-in-time deliveries to be able to make the turbines and manufacture stuff and continue in manufacturing. And we needed you know, to be able to transport technicians and supervisors and support staff all around the globe. And that becomes a real logistical challenge during COVID. So we did well, uh, so don't get me wrong in that respect. And it was also great that, that when COVID hit, uh, people, well, governments at least, there was a lot of rhetoric around being able to use the COVID crisis to, for example, when we start to recover from COVID, and you know, we know that the world will eventually recover from COVID, but when that happens is that we don't want to recover. It's not, it's a chance. Now we've kind of like had some sort of disruption and it can be a complete disruption where we can come back with, for example, a lot bigger renewables uh, in the energy mix than what we've previously seen. So this you know, green recovery is the, what we speak about all the time in the industry. This could be a real thing and this could be a real step change, but we need, you know, we need, everyone needs to step up and actually make this happen. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And you, you briefly touched on, on COP26, which is in Glasgow this year. And I know it's quite early stages for the work you're doing towards that, but, but what does that look like um, for GWIC at the moment? Yeah, so we've got a whole series of uh, companies signed up already for COP. Um, you know, we've got some manufacturers and some developers. We've got some people in the uh, offshore space, the onshore space some oil and gas companies that are pivoting from, that are pivoted from tr traditional oil and gas to include um, uh, wind power or renewable energy. Um, and so what we're doing is that we are, we are lobbying to get a space in the blue zone, which is the, the, the zone for pass holders or badge holders, uh, which would, you know, there's the, the negotiations, the blue zone and the green zone. And we're hoping to get a space in the blue zone and we'll, we'll know quite shortly whether we've got that space. And if we do get that space, then we'll do a whole lot of activations and we'll have a whole lot of, uh, of various, um, yeah, I guess, speakers and uh, messages during that time. And there'll be a whole lot of events. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to get uh, a, a couple of creative agencies. One, MNC Saatchi, but it's a London-based creative agency. They have, they're offering to do some work with us uh, on a pro bono basis to help us uh, get some comms established. And we also have another company, a Danish-based company called CAD People that are also working on a pro bono basis to help us get some framework established and some uh, with digital assets and reworking or repurposing some digital assets that they have as well. Um, so it's it's great that we're seeing a lot of companies willing to come to the party to really you know, support uh, the wind industry and so we will be uh, 
if, yeah, I guess it'll be a watch this space. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be launching our COP program officially around about mid-June. And so from then, we can maybe have another chat at, at some other point during the year, Chris, to so have a catch up and I can fill you in on exactly what's become of COP. But I, I would I would encourage all your listeners, if they're interested, to, uh, to listen to this space and, uh, and then, you know, then uh, you'll hear more and more details as we start to firm up the idea of ideas for COP. And you know, a, a bit of a spoiler alert, I've seen some of the initial creative work that MNC Saatchi and CAD people have come with. And I think that they're just so uh, clever in, uh, in their messaging. So I'm really looking forward to you know, getting something that is memorable and that really you know, helps set the narrative for a COP this year. No, that's great. And we will 100% have you uh, back on closer to the time for, um, for an update. And I suppose on that note, you, you are a podcaster yourself. Um, I know that you know colleagues as well have um, been running a weekly news uh, meeting on, on Clubhouse. So, you know, you, you've had Week in Wind, you've done your podcast yourself in the past. What's in the pipeline for you um, in those regards? Yeah, so th thank you for that. And uh, I think actually that's how we met. I think it was through the Offshore Wind podcast originally. And that was a podcast that I did with GWIC when I was at MHI Vestas Offshore Wind, where I really felt like uh, the offshore wind needed a, a dedicated space. And so I, I went to uh, Ben Backwast and so we offered to sponsor this podcast um, since we're actually going to do a season two of the podcast, which we're, uh, we've, we've got the, we've just come up with the, uh, the program for the, for the next 15 episodes and we'll be doing a bi-weekly podcast. Uh, and we have a new sponsor this year and it'll be myself and David Lenti from, uh, Siemens Gamesia that'll be hosting the podcast this year. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's the podcast side of things. Um, and Clubhouse has been a bit of an interesting beast. Uh, I, I, I've, I've got introduced to Clubhouse, and for those of those listeners that of yours, that, but if you don't know what it is, you have to picture like this, uh, like the world's biggest conference program. And then you know, you when you join, when you enter the podcast, uh, when you enter uh, Clubhouse, rather, you you're you're starting at the start of a corridor. And then you walk down that corridor and, you know, to the left, you, you might see, you know, someone talking about Bitcoin. To the right, there's someone about talking about, you know, gay rights. To the left, you know, you take a step further and there's someone talking about, you know, uh, saving whales. And, and then it's pretty much a, a, a conference where every single topic in the entire world could be discussed. And so my colleague, um, Alyssa and myself, Alyssa, who's heads up our comms, we decided that we wanted to GWIC to have a space here uh, in this uh, podcast, uh, in this clubhouse rather. And so we we have this week in wind, which we've trialed. We've had a bit of a hiatus for the last two weeks because we're still trying to find the right time zone for it. Uh, but we'll be back in the in the near future. But we really believe that it's great. You know, the wind industry and renewables industry would would really benefit from. Uh, a clubhouse presence, a permanent clubhouse presence. Yeah, definitely. No, and I, I attended um, a few of them. For anyone listening as well, it's it's almost like it's an interactive podcast. So you have your hosts of it, but then you can put your hand up and be invited to speak. And the, the caliber of people that you've had on, um, the, the 
meetings so far have all been like you know really interesting people and um sharing wealth of knowledge that you probably wouldn't be able to pick up us anywhere so you'll have to keep us posted on the new podcast because i'll uh, i'll put a link yeah. out to your old one as well the previous season on when i post this podcast so people can find that because i listen to all of those as well and it's a, it's a different sort of um structure to, to yeah. mine it's more very industry knowledge and news and stuff so i'll put a link to that once the um clubhouse is ready to go again keep us posted and we'll push some information out on that as well and no no i was gonna say no thanks for that it's uh again i mean clubhouse is is kind of interesting you know you you don't really know or i i haven't found many people really know how knowing seeming to really know what to do with it or how to use it effectively so you know i think that one of the things you have to do is build your network and before you can build your messaging and i think we uh, we made the mistake of going pretty hard with messaging. I think that, you know, I personally, I had these, you know, wonderful conversations with experts in the industry, but, you know, like, I think we got like maybe 50 people in week one and then 30 people in week two and then 20 in week three. And then, you know, for the last few times, it was like, you know, 10 to 15 people sort of roaming in and out. Um, and, and so we, our audience diminished. And I think that, you know, you really need to build your personal uh, following and you need to build the brand so we've done it enough now where we can have where gee can have its own club room um and so we'll be setting up a club room where we can have uh yeah uh, yeah a g week branded uh yeah clubhouse and uh so yeah that's going to be interesting yeah we'll, we'll keep we'll keep you posted on our, our platform as well for when that's going live and yeah yeah i mean we're coming towards the end of this uh conversation as mentioned we'll definitely have to get you back on um Last couple of questions then really is what what does the future look like to you? I think that the future is a is a really interesting uh, is going to be a really interesting place to be. I think that we are at a critical juncture in time now, and I think that we have the society that we're living in now through the decisions we take right at this very point in time are going to have some profound impacts on what this our world looks like in 10 and then 30 years time so you know 2030 to 2050 the stuff that we do now the stuff that we put in place now um, is going to determine what type of lives we lead back uh, you know when I'm an old guy, you know, in retirement. Um, so I, I think that the future, for me, the future looks really bright and I think it's going to be an awesome place to be. I think that, I think that finally we're starting to become, uh, or I feel like we're starting to become masters of our domain, you know, like things like, um, you know, if I, if I just look at the renewable section, which is what we're focused on for this podcast, I mean, you know, there's, I have, I have perspectives on a lot of stuff in the future, but if I just contain it to this renewables area, I mean, you know, like the, this whole thing of, you know, intermittency, power to X, uh, storage, uh, you know, carbon capture, the whole hydrogen economy that's developing. I think that there's a whole lot of stuff now that's just going to really shape the, the energy mix in the future to a 
uh, to a point where we don't need coal. Coal's a great thing to have in the earth. You shouldn't, you, sh you know, it's a great resource to have. We shouldn't just burn it. It's too precious to burn. And I think that, you know, people will look back in this, at this time, you know, the industrial age as a year, uh, as ages of squander where we've just wasted so much resource. Um, but I really believe, uh, yeah, uh, remember I, I, one word that kind of sticks in my mind about the future, it's this notion of progress. Like most people talk about innovation and innovation is great, you know, like innovation is cutting edge, et cetera. But innovation without purpose is meaningless, but innovation with purpose gives progress and you can actually guide that progress. And, I, you know, like, again, for me, progress, you know, like that's takes me back to you know, when you were, when the the old wild west and they were laying tr railway tracks across the, you know, the to the to get out the open up the western uh, coastline of the U.S. You know, you know that that was progress. It was all about building stuff and making stuff better and making stuff great. And I think we've I think that somehow do, that we've maybe in the eighties and. That we've that we've lost this sense this this idea of progress and we've kind of uh, stood still a little bit and, and focused on innovation. But I feel like now that we're we're starting to talk about you know this idea of passion and purpose again, and then you combine that with innovation and thought and and then we start to you see where there's opportunities to progress and really make some fundamental differences in the world. So. Yeah, for me, I think that the, that we're going to see a lot of progress, and this progress is going to be very positive, as opposed to sort of like you know squandering natural resources. That's brilliant. I think we're. Um, I think we'll leave that there because that was a fantastic answer, Stuart. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll get you back on, you know, in the in the next couple of months for an update your end. But no, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. It was great talking with you. And I, I'm sorry that I've just uh, yeah, chatted and chatted and chatted. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm normally on the other end asking the question, so it's a little bit disconcerting for me to, to actually have to answer questions for a change. But uh, I've really enjoyed coming on, and uh, thank you very much for, the, for this uh, program, and good luck to your listeners. Thanks again to Stuart for taking the time to speak with us there. A fountain of knowledge on the industry and we'll have lots more insight from Stuart moving forward as well. Stuart's original podcast is called literally the Offshore Wind Podcast by the Global Wind Energy Council. It can be found on Spotify, Apple, all the same platforms to mine. Um, that's it. Still really want to hear from people that want to get involved in the podcast or if you're looking for a new job or you need to build a team out, know where RRS are. Speak soon.